Remembrance Sunday and the Prime Minister telling us we must remain vigilant. Do you feel confident the government are being vigilant? We look at the channel crisis, something that the other media channels are at last now covering. And today we'll examine how a jet ski made it across to the UK. And joining me on Talking Pines is veteran political commentator Trevor Kavanagh. It was Remembrance Sunday, the very moment at 11 o'clock at which thousands of simultaneous services were going to take place right across the country. Some large, some small, but an important moment in our nation's calendar. It was sad, of course, that the Queen wasn't there in Whitehall yesterday. Somewhat later on, we heard that at 10.59, a bomb had gone off in a car outside Liverpool Women's Hospital, and everybody was scratching their head as to what on earth was going on. We later learnt of very major police operations taking place in Liverpool and the surrounding areas, uh, and we learnt uh, today that, in fact, there'd been a controlled explosion uh, just outside Sefton. The news coverage yesterday was really very odd indeed, very muted, but we learned today that the police are treating this as a terrorist incident, although they don't know what the motivation of the bomber was. All I can say is thank goodness that the taxi driver who was sitting in the front seat survived. In response to all of this, the terror alert in this country, the threat of terrorism, has been raised to severe. So we are not in a good place. The Prime Minister this afternoon has responded at a press conference by saying we must remain vigilant. And the question that I want to ask you tonight is do you believe the government are being vigilant enough and you can let me know what you think about that proposition gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet at gbnews for my part i think the prime minister saying that we must remain vigilant which kind of says to us well actually we really are being vigilant we really are on top of things what makes a complete and utter mockery of that in my opinion is the fact that over 20,000 young, undocumented males have come illegally into this country this year across the English Channel. They don't have passports. They don't have documentation. They don't even have their mobile phones because they get chucked into the sea. We have no idea who they are or where they come from, and I've insisted from the start of the Channel crisis that this is a potential risk to national security. So, Mr Johnson, as far as I'm concerned, your reassurance that you're being vigilant is not worth the paper it's written on, uh, because I think what's happening in the channel completely and utterly makes that statement look ridiculous. But look, I'm very keen to find out what you think on that. Now, back to Liverpool. Our Home Affairs and Security Editor put forward this story of what happened yesterday. It's just before 11am on Remembrance Sunday. As the nation pauses to remember its war dead, this security camera captures the moment a taxi pulls up at the front of Liverpool Women's Hospital. Moments later, an explosion. As smoke pours from the taxi, the driver, David Perry, can be seen staggering from the vehicle, thankfully with only minor injuries. In the back of the cab, 
as it's engulfed in flames a man who police now believe was a bomber who brought his explosive device into the taxi. It's not clear what any intended target was, but police say he asked the driver to take him to the women's hospital. A memorial service was also taking place nearby. The explosion has now been formally declared a terrorist incident. Following discussions with Army Ordnance Disposal, we are able to confirm that this is being treated as the ignition of an explosive device. Our inquiries also indicate that the device was brought into the cab by the passenger. We believe we know the identity of the passenger, but we cannot confirm this at this time. The taxi driver, who's now been released from hospital and is recovering at home, has been hailed a hero. Away from the scene of the explosion, police raided two residential addresses and made four arrests. Those arrested under the Terrorism Act are still in police custody today, being questioned by counter-terrorism detectives who are trying to piece together information about the suspect and his movements prior to the explosion. At Rutland Avenue, around a mile from the hospital, there is still a heavy police presence. A mobile police command unit has been set up at the end of the street as a property linked to the dead suspect is searched. Neighbours told us of their shock at the unfolding events. You don't really see stuff around here like that. It's, I think it's a bit mad wherever you live, you see things like this, isn't it? We it's don't a, really know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's a bit clueless. Uh, being Even a bit, the police just said they don't really know yeah, what's going yeah. on. It, well, the other police at that side said there was a manhunt. Police and security services are now urgently trying to establish whether there is any wider threat to the public. They've said they've discovered significant items at the Rutland Avenue address and are likely to be involved in a prolonged search of that property. Mark White, GB News, Liverpool. Now, the Telegraph reported earlier on today that those that had been arrested were suspected to be of Middle Eastern origin. Uh, the police continued to say they did not know what the motive for the attack was, although they believed that it was a terrorist incident. I have to say, in my own mind, the timing of this and the day on which upon it happened has led me to speculate as to what it might be. But I understand now we've got some breaking news that someone has been named. And let's cross live to Liverpool to be joined by Mark White, GB News's home and security editor. Mark, what's the news? Well, Nigel, the police have now named the bombing suspect who died in the back of that taxi, 32-year-old Ahmed Al-Swilmin. Now, he is uh, a man who we're told who rented a property in Sutcliffe Street. That's one of those properties that was raided yesterday and there's still a significant police presence there today. Also... Another address in Rutland Avenue he had apparently started renting just recently. Now that, according to the police, is an address of significant interest to them. They say that they continue to recover significant items. Our understanding is that that address in Rutland Avenue is the bomb factory, we understand, where this device was assembled before. This man uh, ordered a taxi and asked the driver to take him 
to the Women's Hospital, just about a mile from that address in Rutland Avenue. It was just as the taxi pulled up at the hospital. Uh, the driver became very suspicious of this man and his intentions. And we understand, not confirmed by the police, but reports from other taxi drivers in Liverpool area, friends and colleagues of this man, that uh, he locked the back doors to the car and the bomb detonated just as he pulled up outside the front of the hospital. He managed to scramble free. Uh, he was... Luckily, lightly injured, he spent the night in hospital. He's back home with his family this evening. But clearly, a very significant investigation for counter-terrorism police and the security services going forward as they try to determine whether there is any wider threat or whether this was the act of a lone individual. We know that those four other young men remain in police custody at this hour. In the... Uh, as the, uh, that investigation continues, uh, the Prime Minister has been uh, chairing a meeting of the government's crisis cabinet uh, committee, COBRA. Uh, at the same time, the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, JTAC, analysts there decided to raise the terror threat level to severe. After that cabinet meeting, the Prime Minister gave this reaction. The police have now confirmed that this is being treated as a terrorist attack. And while the investigation continues at pace, you will understand that I can't comment on the details of the case or its motivation. But it is a stark reminder of the need for us all to remain utterly vigilant. And the independent Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, JTAC, are today raising the UK's threat level from substantial to severe meaning an attack is highly likely. Well, as you heard, the Prime Minister saying that severe threat level does mean that another attack is highly likely. Uh, he said, though, and the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre say that there is no specific intelligence of another imminent attack. However, the public is being asked to remain vigilant but not alarmed. They will see an increase in police presence in urban centres of population over the coming days uh, at key locations, buildings, rail stations and alike. Well, I'm delighted to hear that David Perry, the driver, is back at home. That's the one piece of good news, the only piece of good news that has come from this incident. Quick question, though. These four men are being detained under the Terrorism Act. How long can the police hold them before they have to be released? Uh, they can hold them now up to two weeks. You'll remember... Uh... A decade or so ago, Nigel, they could be held for a month, 30 days, I think it was, but there was a lot of controversy uh, over that. It was actually this uh, Conservative government in opposition under the guise of Theresa May, who was very opposed to that 30-day detention period, and they reduced it to two weeks. Uh, so, uh, as often we see with these terrorism investigations, as they find out more about the attacker, the key suspect, uh, then they look for uh, those who are associates, friends, family. They are rounded up, often questioned. Uh, most of them are uh, usually then released uh, and not charged after a period of time. But we don't know who these four men are. We don't yes. know what their connection, if any, to the incident is. Uh, but certainly uh, that key 
uh, location in Rutland Avenue, which we believe is the bomb factory, will uh, give them some very significant clues to the construction of this device, Nigel. And the key question, uh, a crucial question, as to whether anyone helped this individual in purchasing the ingredients for this bomb, helped yes. him in some way to construct the bomb, and, of course, whether there are any other devices like this still out there. Yeah, absolutely. Mark White, thank you very much indeed in joining us and reporting live from Liverpool. Well, joining me to analyse this is terrorism expert Dr David Lowe, a senior research fellow at Leeds Beckett University's Law School and a retired police officer. Good evening, David. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. So the police have been very clear about this, that it is a terrorist incident. They are not um, uh, telling us what they think the motive may be, uh, but the timing of this with the Remembrance Sunday services um, it can't just be a coincidence, can it? Well, you, you have to be open-minded as an investigator and look at all possibilities, and I think uh, ACC Jackson, who's heading the investigation for the Northwest Counterterrorism Unit, is taking the right approach. Uh, you know, the, 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 it is important actually now to find this motive uh, to see what the cause is. Uh, because that, that then helps to direct the rest of the investigation. But uh, as your reporter was saying there, there's, there's so much work still to do. And this week, the, this first seven-day period will be vitally important. They're, they're going to do devices, communications uh, from the mobile phones to see who uh, this fellow's been communicating with. What's he been posting on the internet? Mm -hmm. uh, what are the, uh, the evidences he got? And, of course, it sounds as though when you say... Uh, significant material, the, the other dress in uh, Rutland, um, you know, ascertain, because if you're making an improvised explosive device, a bomb, uh, you need a degree of knowledge, you need a degree of experience, and it's very rare they work alone. Uh, and I think, yeah. you know, obviously we, we can't say anything because the four suspects are suspects. Um, but, you know, we, we saw this with the Manchester Arena bombing. Uh, with Salman Abedi, his brother has now been convicted. There, there were connections. But I think what's significant is we didn't go to level four, the imminent threat, um, which we saw with Manchester. I'm, I'm drawing that analogy because an IED was used there. We, 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 there they went to level four because the, the police feared from the information they had that there could still be more devices out there. Well, we still can't rule it out, but to go back to severe, to me, does make sense uh, from yeah. substantial with I the impacts we've had recently. And it's worth, isn't it, David, maybe just re reminding ourselves that it's not very long ago that a serving member of parliament was stabbed to death and uh, we know, or we think we know, that the motivation's there. This was somebody who'd been severely radicalised, a radical Islamist terrorist. Uh, and it does feel, doesn't it, it does feel in many ways that this country is under threat, potentially of terrorism, in a way that it's not been for a very long time. Yeah, I think you, you, the, the, the Islamist threat, I think, is still the main threat faced here in Britain, not the UK, because they don't target Northern Ireland. Um, but, yeah, that's still the main threat. But I sort of look at the, the, the three forms of extremism that we face in the UK as a whole. You've got that. You've got the extreme far right. Uh, you look at who they target and who. And don't forget, this, oh, about 30 attacks have been prevented since 2017. But these individuals from the extreme far right, they're targeting politicians. Jack Renshaw got convicted. He was targeting the MP Rosie Cooper. And, of course, we know about uh, 
Thomas Mayer and Joe Cox. And then across the Irish Sea in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, they, they've been severe. They never went to substantial, mainly because the distant Republican groups like the new IRA, Operation Arbasia, helped to weaken that. But they will come back again. There's other uh, distant Republican groups. So we face it on three fronts, Nigel. Uh, the Islamist, the extreme far right, and Ireland. But there's other forms of extremism are creeping in uh, that can be causes of concern. Uh, incel, this involuntary celibacy, this is another one that's caused, caused concern. And that was linked with uh, looking at the attack in Plymouth. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I know that. And, and, and I, but I just feel, David, when the Prime Minister says we must remain vigilant, do you think, as an expert in this field, uh, that in terms of what we do as a government, through our security services and our police forces, are we, in your opinion, being vigilant enough? Well, we have some of the widest sweeping terror legislation, uh, certainly within Western states, uh, and, uh, and Canada's not far behind. Um, I look at the work done by uh, our, both security services, the Secret Intelligence Service MI6 for abroad, and obviously Security Service MI5 here in the UK, and the work that counterterrorism uh, police officers do. Uh, some might say I'm biased because I'm a retired officer, but I know the work they put in is absolutely incredible. Uh, the, their aim is to is to prevent attacks from happening. The, the last thing you want to do in counterterrorism is detect, because that means someone has either died or been seriously injured. Uh, so you, you do want to prevent it. They are putting a lot of work in. Um, it is about being vigilant, and I, I accept that. I think we, we can all play a part, Nigel, um, you know, uh, under uh, Action Counters, Terrorism is one initiative. Uh, those who, when we use the train, I'm sure now some might suddenly twig to hear, see it, say it sorted. Yeah. It's us playing our little part to pass some information on. Yeah. But I think I we... we, we I don't doubt that, David, and I thank you very much for coming on and joining us this evening. With David Lowe there making the point that our security services do do a very good job, and that's fair enough. But I just can't help thinking what I said at the top of the show, that the arrival of over 20,000 undocumented young males into this country is a potential risk to our country. And last week I was berating the newspapers and other broadcasters for refusing to cover this subject, despite the fact there was another death last Monday, despite the fact that 500 came last Tuesday, that 695 came last Wednesday, and there was no coverage at all until after Thursday, when 1,185 came, yet another record day, suddenly the newspapers have, and indeed the broadcasters, have been full of this story. Well, today, it took a slightly new twist. I was um, on the south coast this morning, um, and just have a look um, at what I spotted. Um, I spotted, I couldn't believe it, but I actually spotted a jet ski. For the first time ever, a jet ski has come across the English Channel and been picked up by the RNLI. It feels that the humiliation of our country knows no bounds. And something else that's been noticed over the course of the last week, and that is that the dinghies that are coming... The dinghies that are coming have changed. They have upturned bows. And those upturned bows mean that the boats can take off from those sandy French beaches when there is a wind, not a strong one, but a wind that's coming predominantly out of the northeast. The wind going straight on to the French beaches. And that raised bow on those boats is a means by which they can launch 
in ever more conditions. And bear in mind, bear in mind, you know, these thousands that are coming every month, and indeed we were into the thousands last week alone, that this is now the middle of November. And when I've seen those new boats with the upturned bows, I realise this simply isn't going to stop. Now, what's it all led to? It's led to the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary firmly pointing the finger of blame at France. And they've both been doing it for the last few days. France must do its bit. And the French have replied, indeed, today, the French Interior Minister, Gérard Darmignon, head of a meeting in Patel, has said that France has no lessons to receive from its British friends. Well, you see, think about it. Politically, it suits both governments to have a row. It suits the Brits to say it's not my fault, it's all the wretched French. And it suits the French government to say the Brits are behaving unbearably over everything because Macron, of course, is facing a re-election campaign in a few months' time. The truth of it is, the French row... And yes, I know we've given them 200 million. I know the last 54 million should never, ever have been given to them. But it suits both sides to have this row. It's a diversion from the truth. Why do migrants want to come? Why do illegal immigrants want to cross the Channel from France to the United Kingdom? I'll tell you why. The French don't give them accommodation in four-star hotels or nice private houses. The French don't give them free dental care, free health care, new mobile phones, three square meals a day. Zero percentage chance so far this year out of the 23,500 that have come, of being deported. Not one has been deported. Oh, and I almost forgot, £38 a week spending money. Until those pull factors are taken away, it doesn't matter how many French gendarmes are on those beaches, numbers will still continue to come. And I'll make you a little prediction, which is tomorrow, once again, we'll see a huge number of people, young men, illegally crossing the English Channel. In a moment, I talked a few weeks ago about the divide in society between Majab and Majab knots and how I felt those who chosen not to have the vaccine would be discriminated against. Well, my what the Farage moment is what happened in Austria at midnight last night, where those who've not had the vaccine are being treated as a different kind of citizen. in the light, not just of what happened in Liverpool yesterday, but that the threat level for more terrorist attacks has gone up to severe. And I'm asking you, do you think the government's being vigilant enough? Because I absolutely don't. One viewer responds by saying, the government have cut police and intelligence services for over a decade now. Weak, weak, weak on crime, Michael says. The establishment are turning us into a dystopian state. Get real. Jack on Twitter says... Boris and his cabinet need to stop spouting hot air at COP26 and use their majority to change the laws and sort out illegals entering our country and putting the UK at risk. Andrew says, the complete absence of border controls on the south coast of England can be utilised by Islamic terrorists. Those already here are enough of a threat. Several of you agreeing with me uh, with that real, real concern. Now...
by what the Farage moment. I did a couple of weeks ago say that I feared our society was being divided into the jabbed and the jab nots. In this country, about 12% of people have not had the vaccine, and they're very unlikely to get the vaccine. Tens of thousands, in fact, left the care sector last week, and that may well become the National Health Service in the spring of next year. And it seems that the threat level against those who will not have the vaccine is going up, but it's going up more quickly across the continent of Europe than it is here. In Austria, Chancellor Schallenberg, who had threatened a couple of weeks ago that if people didn't have the vaccine, they may well get treated differently. Well, from midnight last night, two million Austrians. That, of course, in a relatively small country, only 65% of Austria has been double-jabbed. Two million Austrians from midnight last night have been locked down. Yep. They are allowed to leave their houses for essential purposes. Uh, but if they're found uh, to go out for non-essential purposes, or if, if they even attempt to go to a restaurant or a bar, uh, they are now liable to fines. And I keep having this debate. Uh, you know, if those that have had the vaccine can still pass the virus on, uh, why are we being just that tough on those that do not, for whatever grounds, not want to have this vaccine. Do they pose a greater risk of passing on the virus? Well, what, <clears throat> one expert last week told me that they do. I'd like to see some real scientific proof of that, because the Prime Minister himself said that even if you've had the double jab, you can still get COVID again and you can still pass it on. It's just that you're less likely to become seriously ill. And that question I'm going to keep asking over the course of the next few weeks. I think what's happened in Austria overnight is deeply sinister. To take a real chunk, you know, to take 35% of your adult population and treat them entirely differently because they haven't done what you've asked them to do in terms of getting a medical treatment, I think it's outrageous. But more than that, I think it's actually very, very dangerous indeed. Now, one of those, I mean, talk about a what the Farage moment, one of those who has brought in the toughest lockdowns across the United Kingdom, one of those who has made it law in Wales to say that face coverings must be worn in all indoor public places is, of course, the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford. Yep, Drakeford, the tough guy. Drakeford. But it turns out, Drakeford... The do as I say, but not as I do. Let's have a look at the First Minister of Wales out socialising at a Diwali reception. <laughs> Not much social distancing going on there, First Minister. Not many face masks in evidence either. And the pathetic excuse that we get back from the Welsh Government is that you don't actually have to wear face masks if you're in premises where food and drink is being served. I mean, you just couldn't make this stuff up, could you? Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk to somebody who really is a veteran journalist. He was political editor of The Sun for many, many years. He still writes a very, very powerful 
weekly column, which we're going to talk about in a moment. He's worked for Rupert Murdoch. He's worked with Kelvin McKenzie. He's been in some pretty controversial situations. Yep, joining me on Talking Pints in just a moment is Trevor Kavanagh. It's my favourite time of the day. Yep, the GB News pub is open, and that's terrific. And for the first time on Talking Pints, I will not be having a pint of beer. This is not because I've signed the pledge or anything like that. It's because our guest has impeccable taste, and he wanted to drink English sparkling wine. And given that I come from the county of Kent, which is producing magnificent sparkling wines, as good as, or if not even better than champagne, I've decided that given his magnificent choice, I'm going to join him tonight with an English sparkling wine. Trevor Kavanagh, welcome to Talking Pines. Cheers, and Nigel. Well chosen you. <laughs> British bubbly at its best. Just terrific. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with today. Lots of things about you. You've had a very long career in journalism, but let's mm -hmm. start with today. I have been banging on, as it were, about the Channel Migrant Crisis. I started off in March 2020. I felt that government weakness, they may as well put a sign on the White Cliffs of Dover saying, all welcome. Uh, I've been predicting all the way through that the numbers would rise and rise and rise, and 1,185 last Thursday. My guess is tomorrow will be... Huge, mm -hmm. again, given the sea conditions. And I was, last week on the show, twice, I actually, in front of the camera, held up the daily newspapers, talked about the other broadcasters, and said, nobody is talking about this. Mm. Despite the fact there was 500 came one day, nothing in the newspapers. 695 came the next day, almost nothing in the newspapers. You today have written a very, very strong piece about this, because you feel, as I do, that actually Boris is in trouble on this, isn't he? I think he's in uh, increasing trouble. Uh, he's been in trouble because of sleaze, obviously, over mm. the last week or so. But I think that will pass. I think that other events will overtake it, and one of the events that I predicted would overtake it is immigration. And it's been simmering away in the background for as long as you and I have been covering or acting in politics. And it has been noticed, by the way, that you've been leading this campaign. <laughs> well, You're enormous it, credit. Because it matters to of people. Of course it does. It's the biggest single thing, I think. Once you strip away people's day-to-day -day worries about cost of living, the possibility of being stabbed in the street or their kids getting involved in drugs or something, yeah. the thing that worries them most of all, and has done for the last 20 years, has been uncontrolled mass immigration. And uh, we don't know exactly how many uh, illegal immigrants have entered this country in the last 20 years, but... Migration Watch won't put a figure on it even, but their private view is that it's probably um, around 4 million, either legal or illegal. But we certainly think that uh, at least a million, probably much more than a million, have come in illegally. And I think that's intolerable by any standards of fairness, even on the basis of legal immigration. People who are queuing in orderly fashion in other countries to come here by going through all the hoops and hurdles of immigration. And spending money in doing it. And spending money. Yep. And, I mean, there is, there's an awful lot of headaches involved in getting into this country legally. It's absolutely painless coming in illegally. Yeah. yeah. No, it really is. No, I think Boris is in very big trouble on this. And, and, and you're right, sleaze comes and goes and it doesn't help. But I think he's in very, very big trouble on this. But why, Trevor? You've been doing 
You've been involved in current affairs, <coughs> politics and media much longer than me. Why is there this reluctance to cover the subject? Why does it have to reach a real boiling point before anybody even wants to talk about it? And even now, Nigel, I don't think people really want to talk about it. Not in politics, not in the yeah. frontline yeah. politics. The public, yes. But um, you know as well as anybody what it's like when the moment you start mentioning uh, immigration, you are immediately branded like a racist or yeah. a fascist. Yeah. And that has been the plight that both of us have had to suffer since Tony Blair took the decision in early 2000s to open the door to all of the accession states. Yep. But at the same time, we were opening the door to all sorts of other refugees. And uh, I said to him once, um, have you noticed uh, that the, the face of Britain is changing? And he looked at me as if I just crawled out from under a rock. And after the conversation, one of his uh, uh, PS spads um, said to a colleague of mine, he's a fascist, isn't he? And that is how they shut the yeah, debate yeah, down. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Racist, extremist, all the rest of it. Yeah, they're still very, very reluctant to cover it. Now, before we get on to your long, fascinating journalistic career and the big, big characters that you work with, well, the biggest in the business, just share with the audience what made you become a £10 palm and head off to Australia. Ah, well, I suppose I'm an immigrant, or an immigrant. Well, well you were an early Brexiteer. You Brexited Britain, didn't you? <laughs> well, I was an export reject because I came back. Uh, so, well, I mean, the great thing about the £10 POM era, I went out when I was 22, and uh, for £10, you were in, on the other side of the world, and I thought, well, I've got to stay for at least two years yep. to qualify. And from there, I can travel back if I want to via any part of the world. I can come back through Asia or through America. As it turned out, I stayed for the next four years, got married and came home after that. Uh, but, um, I mean, Australia was the most fantastic experience for me in the 1960s and 70s when all sorts of doors were open to um, an ordinary journalist, whereas you'd have buggins turn in this country uh, to some extent, less in journalism than in other careers. But in Australia... Everybody I came across in their 30s was the heads of sort of the whole Pacific Basin or something for whatever they did. <laughs> People were rising up to become editors or uh, deputy editors or specialists uh, because there were vacancies and there were opportunities. And, and, so, and Britain was a bit stuffy by comparison. Britain was very stuffy back then. I mean, things have changed a lot and yeah. uh, you can make rapid progress these days. But... Uh, the, um, the great thing about Australia was it was a real, genuine, egalitarian society where if you did the job properly, you got promotion. And they threw me into the sort of deep end as a political editor in Canberra of the paper I was on, which is now the now defunct uh, Sydney Daily Mirror. And it was just six months before Gough Whitlam was sacked. Yeah. Huge, immense yeah. stories. I mean, you couldn't... And because this was where the Queen, of course, got involved. The Governor-General sacked him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting. But you came back, and it was with an Australian, of course, Yes, that you have made a very big name in journalism. You've probably been the most influential journalist in the last 40 years because you became Poled, political editor of The Sun, in 83. You were there through some very dramatic moments, uh, the Thatcher years, uh, the battle with the, mining, uh, the miners' unions and Scargill... Uh, ERM, which we'll come back to in a moment, major, uh, and of course, in a way, 
You were partly responsible for Kennett not winning that election, weren't you? Oh, I wouldn't possibly. I mean, well, the Sun newspaper. <laughs> well, the Sun newspaper was, and you had, you... well, the Sun is the thing. I mean, the Sun has been one of the most uh, potent forces in British politics and in British society, in a way that is almost uh, impossible to imagine happening as it did in the 1960s and 70s, and then through the 80s, because there was no internet. No internet. Um, everyone turned to the sun as the breaker of big stories. We were the first to break the stories. And other newspapers used to... And I remember the uh, editor of The Times, Peter Stoddart, doing, paying us the ultimate tribute and picking up the latest splash, uh, sun splash, from the, as it came off the presses, and they're sitting there having their evening conference and saying, if that's in the sun under that byline, we can just lift it. <laughs> I mean, that was, a, that was amazing. This is a, this is a super sore away... Some you were talking about the. Rebels. It was, I mean, politically very, very powerful. And um, we had Kelvin McKenzie on a few weeks ago. Yeah, you know, a highly controversial character, but Brilliant. clearly, Brilliant. clearly very, very good as an editor. Yeah, yeah. What about Rupert? I mean, I mean, how close to Rupert, Rupert Murdoch have you been over the years? Well, by the very nature of things, you you don't do politics for his favourite newspaper without him wanting to talk to you now and again. Yeah. Uh, but and, the, and, and he, of course, <coughs> a newspaper man at heart. He's a Sun man at heart. Yeah. Yeah. Not just a newspaper man. I think the son is his baby. I think that even today, uh, he is more interested in the son as a newspaper than possibly any other part of his business. Obviously, there are things like Fox TV and so on. Which, which is enormous. Very important. Yeah. But the, the thing that he loves, the first, uh, the first love of his life was the son uh, 45 years ago, whenever it was. And, and it's been... Um, after all, it was the font of his fortune. It was what the fortune that it made allowed him to build Sky and then go to America yeah. and build his American business over there. It all came from the sun. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, his, his career is astonishing in terms of what he's achieved and, 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 I mean, the influence that he's had. Kelvin, working with Kelvin, come on, be honest, what was that like? It was a combination of terrifying and exhilarating and uh, also very temporary because I had never, my wife and I used to make plans for what we would do in three months' time when I got the sack, <laughs> which I did once. I, I got the sack, as everyone got the sack. Um, what, what did you do to get the sack? Nothing. Because <laughs> <laughs> he sat in that chair a couple of months ago and I said to him, in a sort of slightly accusatory term, I said, tone, I said, I said, Kelvin... You were a tyrant hmm. when you ran the sun. And I wonder what his reaction... He said, yes, I was, and yes. I loved it. <laughs> I said that to him, and he, he, he took it as a compliment. Yeah. And uh, I said, you were... You were uh, I, no, I won't say the word I actually used, because... <laughs> but he knows very well that he was a, a very tough boss who yes. often went over the top in more ways than one. But at the same time, there's a sort of unerring way of getting the readers on side and building upon everything that uh, went before. And we very nearly got to the point of the five million a day yeah. circulation yeah. under his editorship. Yeah. Which today seems almost beyond comprehension. Yeah, it certainly does, doesn't it? When you talked about Australia and that sort of meritocratic society where people could climb the ladder very quickly regardless of age or class or all of those things, in a sense, was that what attracted you to Mrs Thatcher? Um, well, it, in a sense it was, because I watched a Labour government fall apart because of typical Labour Party policies on spending and borrowing and, um, and the, the way the economy crumbled. I came back to Britain in um, 1978 
during the winter of discontent, just as it was beginning. Yeah. I mean, uh, in those days, you, people don't remember and probably cannot imagine what it was like to find themselves. And in those days, they had proper winters. They had a foot of snow that you had to trudge through. Well, this is before global warming, is it? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before the new ice age. Um, so uh, you really did have to battle to get on a bus because it's overcrowded because there's only one bus going. There's a strike in every direction. The, yeah. post office workers and so on. And then Thatcher came in and you had to... The machine that she brought in, some of the uh, cabinet ministers she had, were really first-rate. They were tough. They'd, they'd worked out their policies before winning the election and they put them into effect. Nigel Lawson, I think, uh, although he came a cropper in the end, was a brilliant chancellor or treasury man at the beginning. Geoffrey Howe, to his credit, was an enormous success dealing with inflation Mm. and tax pa reform. Painful medicine, there was Painful medicine, yes. I mean, uh, t inflation shot up to, what was it, 26%? 27 was how it was, yeah. yeah. 26 and a half, I think. Anyway, whatever it was, I can remember going into supermarkets and the, the shop assistants would be running around with a little stick of tape, putting new prices on over the top of <laughs> three or four other new prices as the prices rose yeah. day by day. I mean, that was terrifying. And, you know, mortgages just went through the roof. You couldn't get a mortgage. In fact, when we first arrived back in England, mm. I would uh, beat a path around the banks and building societies, and they'd Try say, no, come back no, next I know, year. you can't believe it. And, no, I mean, listen, it was very tough medicine. She was very unpopular in some quarters, but the economic policies did work. And, I, I mean, I was, I was part of that as well. I was a you know, member of the Conservative Party, and I believed in it. I thought it had to be done. But you mentioned the fact that you came back to a... Labour government that was high spend, high tax, and I put it to you, we have a Conservative government that is high spend, high tax, uh, state control at every level. This is not a Conservative party, is it? Well, I think that an awful lot of the present cabinet would echo those views, and in, in private they do. Um, I mean, they literally hold their hands up and talk about the money that's being hurled at the NHS and at COVID, and, and also the taxes, the national insurance contributions going up. Everything's going to go up next year in a way that we cannot imagine because we have haven't been through it for the last 20 or 40 years. It's really 40 years, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And inflation is now... I know that the Treasury, the Chancellor, is very worried about inflation. I know that the banks are very worried. The Bank of England itself is not actually doing its duty either on this. Um, and once inflation gets out of control, it's very difficult, as we know, to get it back into control. Mm. I think it's going to go way beyond the 6% they're talking that about. That I think it's going to be 8, 9, maybe even double figures. I do. Inflation is a disease of money caused by government, is what Enoch Powell told me yes. 30 years ago. And, yeah. I, and I think all the evidence is he's right. Is Boris going to survive? Um, <laughs> On the face of it, big majority, I mean, it should be easy. Ten days ago, I would have said yes. I'd have said that he was comfortably ahead in the polls. He hadn't been behind in the polls. He had delivered Brexit. He had got the uh, vaccination programme going. And I would have thought he was unassailable, at least by the Labour Party, as it was then. It was only 10 days ago. Yeah. And I think that he blew all that in one... a long time. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> 10 days is... <laughs> so uh, I think he blew all of that in one stupid yeah. move. Yeah. And I don't know what on earth possessed him. But it was his move. Because if Patterson had taken his medicine, hmm. he'd have been back in the Commons before Christmas. It would have been just yet another MP. We wouldn't have known. Knuckles. And lots of Tories, the posh Tories, sitting on 20,000 majorities with their big second incomes, could have carried on having their second incomes, which now look threatened. And the 2019 intake, who were very different people, 
more Thatcherite, really, former coal miners and aspirational people without the same very posh backgrounds. They're now worried that Sleaze could make them lose their seats. He seems to have really upset both sides of the parliamentary party. He has, and a new development has taken place in the divisions. In the, it's not just Remainers versus, versus Brexiteers mm. now. It is those red wall seat Tory MPs versus the old guard. Who, the Toffs versus the, the Oiks. The Toffs, yes, or the, um, the, uh, uh, the Spartans, as they call yeah, them. I like the, you see, I like the Oiks because, to me, the Oiks are the eukification of the Conservative Party, and in a way they are. Well, they're your boys, really. Yeah, absolutely. girls. Yeah, absolutely. Brexit, Trevor, you were always very, very strongly Eurosceptic. And I just want to finish on this point. I don't think the public really understand what an important role Rupert Murdoch played, and you played, back in 1997, without which I believe we would have joined the Euro, hmm. which would have been economically catastrophic and would have made Brexit very, very much harder to achieve. Just explain what happened with, I mean, you know, your newspaper had fallen out of love with John Major, and I get all the reasons why. Blair was off to the races. Just explain, just tell us, for historical record, what happened with Blair, the Euro, the referendum pledge? Um, well, it's very simple. Um, he, was, he would have gone for a, the single currency without a referendum. Without a, and he was very powerful at that particular point. Uh, at that point, he'd been victorious in Iraq, and he could easily have carried that without anyone against it at all. Even Gordon Brown couldn't have stood in his way, if he decided. And as I understand it, he was told by Rupert that were he to go down that route without a referendum, uh, then we would be, have to uh, campaign against it. And uh, at that point, as you say, the Sun was a potent force. And you'd hurt the Labour Party in the previous election. Yes, and I think that that made, gave uh, Blair pause for thought. And he promised a referendum, and from then on, the referendum was inevitable. And it, thanks to you, it actually took place. Well, and finally, Trevor, what's, what's the high point of it all been? Just doing the job, frankly. I mean, uh, I'm absolutely stunned that uh, it's now been... 40-odd years since I started working for uh, The Sun and for Rupert Murdoch, and uh, I've had the most exhilarating career you could possibly have, even possibly more exhilarating <laughs> than yours. <laughs> well, you see, someone like Trevor Kavanagh, he's an old journo, he's an old hat, he's never going to retire. He still writes a column in The Sun every Monday, and it's the first thing I turn to every Monday. That was Trevor Kavanagh, who joined me on Talking Pints. Time is short. We're towards the end of the show, but it is the Barrage, the Farage moment where you send your questions in that I do not see before. I've kept Trevor Kavanagh here for his experience. I may need to bring him in. Charles asks me, why are we sending troops into Poland when they should be securing our own country? War with Russia, Trevor, is it possible? Well, uh, the armed forces chief thinks it is. And you have to look at the situation and wonder what would stop him if he wanted to. <clears throat> if they press on in Belarus and... Uh, uh, cause a real conflict with uh, Poland. If this spills over into something wider, and you have to make an assumption that China and Russia, are the, at the very least, are talking to each yeah. other. Yeah. 
Is this a coordinated test of the West's resilience? Well, given the weakness of the current commander-in-chief in the USA, nothing would surprise me, because, you see, the Donald, whatever you think of him, was strong and tough. And, yes, I'm worried about it. Yvonne asks, how do you see yours and your children's future in England with the decline so apparent? Do you know, I always wanted a campaign for us to be an independent, self-governing, free, proud country. One man said to me about four years ago, well, you've won that bit. The question now is what kind of country is it going to be? And he's sitting here with me in the studio. And it is worrying, isn't it? The shape of our society, law and order. Well, it's more than law and order. It's the divisiveness of what is supposed to be a diversity agenda. The identity politics, the gender politics, the race uh, issue... You have to watch every single word you yeah. say. I mean, people will be watching you and me talking. Oh, evening. I know, and they'll criticise. <clears throat> well, there's a lot more to fight. We did win the Brexit one, and that's something. There's a lot more to do. I'll be back with you tomorrow evening. Coming up next, it's Colin Brazier. First, though, the all-important.